Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, help us to live for you in the deep end, to get out of the comfort zone and get into the zone of the unknown, to be your hands, to be your feet, to be a difference maker. Lord, we've got one shot at life, and I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't waste it on lesser pursuits, that we would leverage all that you've given us to advancing your kingdom and helping somebody else along the way. Lord, as we open up your word and we read about the courage of Esther and everything that she went through and how she stood in the gap, God, may we be people that were like her. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to welcome everybody here today, those joining us on TV and on the stream. I also want to welcome all of our multi-site campuses too, plus our campus ones in New Mexico and the ones that are in Belize. I'm I'm so glad that you could be a part. I've got to clean my glasses. Some of you are, are not happy about my team winning the Super Bowl. And you've let me know that. And I've prayed for your salvation. I have. I've prayed that you would come to your senses. I want you to look up Proverbs 9.8. Haters going to hate. That's what that is right there. You looked that up for your own enjoyment. All right. Enough of that silliness. Let, let's get into the message today because we're starting a brand new series called The Queen of Hearts, and it's all about a young woman by the name of Esther. It's a story of unbelievable courage. So let me start off by telling you another story of unbelievable courage. Her name was Irina Sindler. Uh, She grew up in Poland during World War II, and if you know much about what the history of World War II was, you know that the Nazis invaded Poland. And one of the first things that they did when they invaded Poland is they gathered the Jewish people together. And they placed them in a concentration camp, and they called this concentration camp the ghetto. Now, Irina knew that these people were not going to see the light of day ever again. She had already heard enough reports as to these concentration camps and what in the world they did to these poor people. But Irina wanted to do something to try to help somebody. She felt like God had called her for such a time as this. But here's the problem. She couldn't get into the ghetto to to give any kind of assistance because she was nothing more than a social worker. But this woman wouldn't give up her pursuit of trying to help these people out. So somehow she got credentials to be a nurse, which gave her access into the ghetto. And then she would go day by day, and she would smuggle in medicine, and she would smuggle in food. Now, as impressive as all of that is, smuggling in medicine and food, what was most impressive is what she smuggled out. She would go in and she would meet the parents. There were thousands of children in this concentration camp. And she would talk to the parents, and the parents would say, if there was just a way that we could get our children out so they could have a life. Well, she came up with a plan. Her plan was when she went into these concentration camps that she would sedate the children. And then she had these toolboxes in her truck, and and they had a a false bottom, and she'd take the top out, and they would lay the child in these large toolboxes and cover them back up again. And then she would take burlap sacks for other children, and she would tie the children up that she had sedated in the sacks, and she would stack them one on top of the other in her truck. Now, Now, she knew that she'd have to go through a checkpoint, and then the Nazi soldiers would be there to check her truck out. But time after time, day after day, she was able to smuggle children out. 
All told, in her time of smuggling children out of that concentration camp, she saved 2,000, just over 2,500 children. I mean, that's incredible right there when you think about that. Yeah, give her a round of applause. I think that's incredible what she did. And then here's what she did. She, she, she had a, a Christian orphanage where they would drop the children off. They would give the children a new identity with new names, and she had a ledger. And she would write down the name of the child and then the new name of the child. And then she kept that ledger. She dug a hole in her backyard, and she would bury that ledger in her backyard in case she was ever captured. She, she did this day after day, week after week, risking her life, and then one day she was caught. And the Nazis were not excited about what she had been doing. And they tortured her, and they beat her, and they broke both of her legs, and they incarcerated her until the end of the war. And then when the war was over and she was released, do you know what Irina did for the rest of the days of her life? She got that ledger out of her backyard, and she found those children, and she reunited them with their families. That's what she did till her dying day. Now that, my friend, is a story of courage, isn't it? That's a story, yeah, that's a story of a, why, a life well lived. And so here we are, we, we look at our life and we say, you know, I want to make a difference. I, I want to make an impact. I, I want God to use me in a way that I've never been used before. Friends, if that's truly a desire of your heart, it's going to take courage. And that's what this small little two-part series about Esther is. This woman has unbelievable Courage, And so we're going to go through the story. Now, for you to understand the story of Esther, you've got to understand the timeline behind. Where, where does this fit in Israel's history? Well, here's what's happened. Israel has had a civil war. And the northern kingdom has formed, there were 12 tribes that formed Israel. Ten of the 12 tribes have gone to the northern kingdom and called themselves Israel. Two of the 12 tribes have gone to the southern and they have called themselves Judah. Well, the people of the Israel, the ten tribes of Israel, they did what was evil and wicked in the eyes of the Lord. And God allowed the Assyrians to come in and lay siege. And they just wiped out, they obliterated these ten tribes. If you ever hear the, the statement, the ten lost tribes of Israel, that's where you get that from. They were just obliterated, wiped from the face of the earth. So there's just a small remnant, two of the 12 tribes that remain. Well, guess what? Judah also did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And God allowed Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, to come in and to take the best and the brightest of what uh, the Jewish people had and brought them back to Babylon to indoctrinate them into the Babylonian way of life. So when we read about the book of Esther, this happens during the exile period. This is where you read the stories of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is during a 70-year period where they've been taken from their homeland and they've been deported to now a foreign land. Well, guess what? Uh, the Babylonians eventually lose to the Persians 47 years later. And the new king of Persia says to the Jewish people, you can go home and rebuild your country if you would like to. Now, you've lived there for 47 years. A lot of the Jewish people at the time had already established roots. They wanted to stay where they were. They already had businesses. They had friendships. They didn't want to uproot their lives and go back. A small remnant did, but many of them stayed in Babylon. And that's where we find Esther. Esther is a foreigner 
in a foreign land. Now, now for you to understand, for me to understand the story of Esther, there's some key people that you need to be acquainted with. And we'll use a deck of playing cards uh, so you can remember who these people are. The first person you need to be familiar with is the king at the time. His name was Xerxes. King Xerxes, this guy is an absolute idiot. I'm just going to tell you that right now. This guy likes to party all the time, party all the time, party all the time. That's what he likes to do. He's a drunken fool is what he is. And by the end of this story, you're going to be sick of him. I'm going to tell you that right now. We have two queens in the story. We'll call them the queen of hearts. They're quite a pair. First queen is Queen Vashti. She's a very independent woman, very independent thinking. You're going to like her an awful lot. And then later, Vashti is replaced placed by Queen Esther. She's also the queen of hearts because she has the hearts of all the people. Now, the villain in the story is what we call the Joker. His name is Haman, and Haman is a very deceitful, evil person. When he finally gets what's coming to him, you will rejoice in that fact. And then lastly, we have the ace in the hole, a man by the name of Mordecai. Mordecai is the cousin of Esther. Something's happened to Esther's parents, and Mordecai is the one who is raising this young woman. All right, let's look at chapter 1. How does the story begin? Well, it begins with King Xerxes having a party. And when they partied in Persia, they partied like I've never seen a group of people party before because this party has gone on now for six months. Six months the guy has been in a drunken stupor. And the whole point of the party was to parade how awesome he is. It was to show how successful he is. So he had all these other kings from all these other kings. He says, I'm going to show you all of my gold. I'm going to show you all of my silver. These are all of my armies. These are all of my possessions. And why is he doing it? Because he's trying to be a big shot. Trying to show off to everybody else. Now let me tell you something, ladies, about men. Men love to show off. And they love to show off in front of the ladies because they think that maybe the ladies would be impressed with us. But most of the time when we try to show off, it doesn't turn out the way that we hope that it would. Take a look at this. rarely see videos of girls doing those kinds of things. You know what I mean? It's like, you think I can do it? No, I think it's impossible. All right, I'll give it a try. That's what I'm going to do. Because guys are idiots. You understand that, right? If we can impress a girl, we'll do it any way we can. I remember when I was a kid, 
I was in elementary school, and my brother was into girls big time. And there were some girls out on the porch in the front yard, and he thought they were cute. And so he was going to be impressive with his bicycle. He was going to do all kinds of bicycle tricks. He just thought those girls would be so enamored, they'd just fall down before him and call him king, I guess. I don't know what in the world he was thinking. So he's doing all these bicycle tricks back and forth, back and forth, doing all these wheelies and stuff. He was really good on the bike. But on this particular occasion, he was so enamored by the girls that he missed out on the fact that the mailman was driving by, and he was going from one mailbox to another. So while my brother is looking over at the girls doing wheelies, he rammed right in the back of the mailman's Jeep. And when he did that, he broke the fork on his bicycle, and then he hit himself in an area where no man wants to be hit. Do you understand? So he's... <laughs> He's writhing in pain on the street, and I'm sitting there crying tears because it's awesome that this has happened to him, you see. Well, this guy's trying to show off. He's trying to be impressive, trying to show everybody how big and bad and awesome he is. Well, we're in the sixth month. He's running out of things, right? And the guy's drunk. And he looks like a fool. You ever met an intelligent drunk person? Because I've never met an intelligent drunk person, not one time. So he's sitting there in his drunken stupor, and he's like, what else can I show these people? And he says, you know what? My most prized possession is my wife, Queen Vashti. Now, there's all kinds of sick and wrong in that sentence, in there? For calling her a possession. It's all she was was a piece of property to him. He says, you know what, call for Vashti, have her come out on the runway, and everyone will see the hottie that I'm married to. And Vashti was to come naked. This is what the Bible says in verse 11. He wanted her to come out in order to show the people and the officials her beauty, for she was fair to behold. So he wants to prance the queen out like she's a steer in a 4-H show. Her job is to come immediately over, show the goods that she has to a bunch of drunken men. <laughs> and surprisingly enough, she's not feeling it. She's like, I don't think so. <laughs> I'm not going. Now, this is going to shock you. It shocks me. But there was a time in history where a woman's value was only in her physical beauty. I know it's shocking. I know it's hard for you to even imagine a culture that would treat women that way, right? I mean, it's just ludicrous, isn't it? There was a time when young girls grew up believing they had to look a certain way and uh, had to prance their stuff in a certain way to gain and garner the attention of men. And so they would go on crazy diets and rigorous exercise. There was a time in the history of mankind, when women were only valued by their outward appearance. I know it's as shocking to me as it is to you. Vashti said, I'm not going. I'm not going to be a bunch of eye candy for a bunch of drunken men. I read this from Brenda McNeil. I thought it was excellent. She wrote, Vashti becomes a wonderful symbol to us of self-esteem and dignity and respect because she has decided that even though her husband may love her, he does not in this moment know how to value her. And so she says to the attendant, no, I decline. 
I respectfully refuse to come and parade myself in front of his party, his guest. I am the queen. I am a woman for whom people lower their gaze when I walk in a room. Men don't gawk at me. I will not come. I love Vashti, don't you? Because she's a reminder that when others don't value you, you should still value yourself. Let me say that again because that was good. Listen to me, young ladies. When others don't value you, when others treat you like you're a piece of meat and you feel pressure to stretch your stuff and show your goods, value yourself. Have character. Have integrity. She said, I won't come. Now, you would think that when the king sobered up and realized what he'd asked his wife to do, that he would have gone to her and he would have apologized. That's what I would have done. Oh, I'm so sorry. I'm an idiot. You know, I was drinking. I'm an idiot when I drank, you know. No, no, he doesn't choose to do that. He, he feels disrespected. He has her banished. And he never sees her again. Vashti's integrity cost her an awful lot, didn't it? But I think as she was standing here today, she would look at us and say, it was a price worth paying. I think she'd look at us and say, you know, if I would have done what he asked me to do, I don't think I could have ever looked myself in the mirror ever again. I, I don't think that I could have ever loved myself. I think that would have been the biggest regret of my life. You know what, you know what I love about the Bible? I'm the father of, of three girls, and what I love about the Bible is that the Bible esteems women. And the Bible puts women in a, in a position of, lo, of, of a loftiness that the culture in which the Bible was written didn't do. And, and the Bible reminds women that you don't have value because you have a man on your arm. That you are more than enough in and of yourself. And, and that God, when you ask him to come into your life, you become a child of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And ladies, I want you to know that you're a princess and you should be treated as a princess. And when someone doesn't want to treat you in the manner in which God wants you to be treated, have value in yourself and do not put up with that kind of garbage. Oh, Vashti lost everything. She lost royalty. She lost the crown. But she gained so much more. And that's the end of her in this story. She lost her crown, but she didn't lose her self-respect. She didn't lose her integrity. I love this poem from John Maxwell. He writes, I have to live with myself, and so I want to be fit for myself to know. I want to be able, as days goes by, always to look myself straight in the eye. I don't want to stand with the setting sun and hate myself for things I've done. I don't want to keep on a closet shelf a lot of secrets about myself. And fool myself as I come and go into thinking that nobody else will know the kind of man I really am. I, I don't want to dress myself up in a sham. I want to go out with my head erect. I want to deserve all men's respect. But here in the struggle for fame and pelf, I, I want to be able to like myself. I don't want to look at myself and know that I'm a bluster and a bluff and an empty show. I can never hide myself from me. I see what others may not see. I know what others may never know. I never can fool myself. And so whatever happens, I want to be self-respecting and conscience-free. 
Well, guess what? Vashti has courage, and she leaves with her self-esteem and her integrity intact. Well, four years goes by, and the king finally realizes how stupid he was. And now he's lonely, and his advisors are concerned about him because he's in a state of depression. And so these wonderful advisors come up with a genius plan. At least they think it's a genius plan. They say, you know what? Well, here's what we'll do, king. We'll get the most beautiful women in all of the kingdom, and we'll prance them one by one before you. We'll have a beauty pageant, and whichever one you think is the most beautiful, you will make her your queen, and you will no longer be lonely anymore. And he thinks it's the most wonderful idea that he's ever heard. Now, this is where Esther enters into our story. She's a very, very beautiful woman. What, what do we know about Esther? Well, we know that she's lost her parents. And we don't know how they've passed away. And we know that she's being raised by her older cousin, Mordecai. We don't know if he was married. We don't know what's happened to his wife. So we got this single guy trying to raise this girl. And all of a sudden there's an edict. And all the pretty girls are being taken and thrown into this beauty pageant. Listen to me. Esther didn't have a choice. In this day and age, women didn't have a choice. They were nothing more than possessions. They were nothing more than pieces of property. And so Esther is thrown into this beauty pageant, and she now has to get herself prepared. And the preparations for this is unbelievable, and it's listed for us in chapter 2. Now let me ask the ladies a question. Just play along with the pastor by a raise of the hand. Play along at home. Play along with the multi-sites as well. How many of you girls have taken, like, let's say 15 minutes to get ready for a date? Anybody taking 15 minutes to get ready for a date? Come on, raise your hand up real high if you've taken 15. Okay, I appreciate that. You can put it back down. Anybody taking up to an hour? Up to an hour to get ready for a date? Up to an hour? I, I, ooh, lots of you. Okay, that's impressive. All right, how many more than an hour? How many two hours? Think, think prom, right? Think your wedding day. We could go a half a day for that one, couldn't we, right there? <laughs> Never looked better in your whole entire life than on your wedding day. That's the way that was. Never looked that good again either, I'll tell you that right now. That's just the way that is. The way that works. And I curiosity, by raising the hands, ladies, how many of you had more fun getting ready for the date than being on the actual date? Anybody have that happen to them? Anybody? Oh, boy, there's a lot of hands that went up for that. Yeah, let me tell you about that jerk. I'll tell you that right now, yeah. I want you to see how long she had to prepare for this pageant. Chapter 2, verse 12 says, each woman had to complete 12 months of beauty treatments. Can you imagine, ladies? 12 months of spas. 12 months of manicures and pedicures and facials, massages. Let's just say it for what it is. Esther had a rough year. That's what she had. She had a rough year getting ready for this beauty pageant. Well, the pageant happens. Look at what happens here in verse 17. It says, the king loved Esther more than all the other women. She won his favor and devotion so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great banquet to all of his officials and ministers, and they lived happily ever after. That's not what it says. That would be Walt Disney, wouldn't it? No, they didn't live happily ever after. You see, there was a man, the joker, Haman, who was the right-hand man of the king. And he liked people to respect him. He liked people to honor him. When he walked down the street, he expected everybody to bow down before him because he's the right-hand man of the king. And everybody did. When Haman walked down the street, he demanded respect, and people gave it to him. They bowed low before Haman, everyone except for one person, Mordecai. Now, Haman doesn't know of Esther's relationship with Mordecai. He doesn't know that Esther is a Jewish person, 
like Mordecai. But he does know this, he hates Mordecai. But Mordecai refuses to bow down to him. He says, the only person I'm going to bow down to is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Only God will I bow down before. Well, Haman hated him for that. And you would think that Haman's vengeance towards Mordecai would only be a one-on-one kind of a thing. But he hated Mordecai so much and the people that Mordecai represented that not only did he want to eliminate Mordecai from the face of the earth, he wanted to obliterate the entire Jewish nation that was living there in Persia. And in chapter 3, he goes to the king and says, Listen, king, there's a group of people here that we brought in from exile years ago. And they don't care a thing about you. They're not loyal to you. They don't have any respect for you. We got a country within a country. And these people need to be obliterated. These people need to be eliminated. And the king said, well, you're my most trusted advisor. I will set a date for a year from now that those people will become open season at that point in time. So the king issues a decree and Mordecai finds out about what the king has decided. The Bible says in Esther chapter 4 verse 1, Mordecai tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. In every providence to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. People are protesting in the streets. They're freaking out. The king has just issued a decree that this race of people is to be killed, to be obliterated from the face of the earth, and they don't know what to do. The only thing they know to do is to demonstrate, and maybe the king will have mercy upon them. And Mordecai finds out about this, and he writes a letter. He gives it to a messenger and says, get this to Esther. And Esther doesn't have a clue what's going on. Why doesn't Esther have a clue? Well, she's probably getting a facial. She's probably getting a mani-pedi, something like that, right? She's probably getting a spa treatment right at that point in time. Probably getting a massage. Here's the problem for Esther. You ready for this? She's got herself in a royal bubble. She doesn't know what's going on. She hears that things are happening crazy in the streets, but she doesn't know why it's happening. She's so busy being pampered and being royalty that she doesn't see the needs just outside her door. And so Mordecai sends a message and says, listen, if you don't do something about this, we're going to be wiped out. And then he says this, maybe, just maybe, God has placed you in this royal position for such a time as this. And Esther's going to have a decision to make. To come out of the palace and see a need and meet a need. Or to go back in the palace and ignore the plight of everyone else. Can I let you know a little secret? It's the same decision you have to make. Let me tell you about most Christians today. Most Christians live in a bubble. And it's a Christian bubble. And they have their Christian friends and their Christian small groups. And they go to their Christian church and they listen to their Christian music. And they watch their Christian, uh, listen to their Christian music and watch the Christian movies that they have. It's just all about them, right? It's a, got this little holy bubble. And we just want to make sure that we're not tainted by the outside world. 
And yet Jesus has called us to be the light of the world. Jesus has called us to be the salt of the earth. But we don't even see the needs right in front of us. Do you see the needs in front of you? Do you see the spiritual needs that are in front of you? Can I, can I ask you a question? When's the last time you shared Jesus with somebody else? And I'm not asking you when's the last time you invited somebody to come to church. When's the last time you sat down with one of your friends and said, listen, I want to tell you about the most important thing that's ever happened in my life. It was an encounter with Jesus Christ. He's wiped away my sins. He's made me a new person. He's got a place reserved for me in heaven. And I want you to know about that because I want you to go with me to heaven. When's the last time you shared Jesus with somebody else? Do you not see the spiritual needs all around us? Do you not see the darkness all around us? You've got family members, you've got friends, you've got coworkers who don't have a relationship with Jesus. My goodness, friends, we've got family members, we've we got coworkers, we, we have friends who have needs and they're hurting and they're empty and they're struggling. And what do most Christians do? Hey, good luck with all that. Hey, man, I don't want to get involved in that. that. That's too much drama for me, mama. You know, I don't want to mess with that right now. And so here's what happens to us. We end up in this little Christian bubble because we care more about comfort than we care about anything else. And if I told you once, I'll tell you a thousand times, comfort leads to complacency. And complacency always leads to boredom. And you look around and you say, where are the Christians in our community? Where are the needs that the Christians are meeting? Where are the people who are rolling up their sleeves and being the hands and feet of Jesus? You just won't find them. And why? Because they see the need, but then they turn around and they look for someone else to do what needs to be done. I read a story this past week about Bob Pierce. Bob Pierce is the founder of World Vision. It's a child sponsorship program. It feeds millions of kids every single month. Let me tell you how it all began. It was right after the Korean War. Uh, Bob Pierce went to Korea, and what he saw absolutely wrecked him, just shocked him. You see, because of the Korean War, there were literally tens of thousands of children that had been displaced. Parents were gone dead. And these kids were trying to make it make a living for themselves on the street. And many of the children were, were dying of starvation. And so Bob Kearse goes to one of these food lines that they, they had made up there and had food there on these tables. And, and the line went for miles at a time. Kids waiting to try to get a bite to eat. And he watched one child that he said changed his life forever. Child got to the front of the line and the food was gone. And the child dropped down and died right there on the spot from starvation. Now, if you've ever seen anything like that, you know that just messes with you, right? You're like, oh my goodness, that was terrible. That was tragic. That was awful. And then your first thought will probably be this. Someone needs to do something about this. Because that's where we normally go. You know, somebody needs to do something about this. I mean, this is ridiculous. Did anybody see what happened there? Somebody needs to do something about that. Maybe that somebody's supposed to be you. I always get a kick out of it. I get emails. I get, I get letters from time to time. Sometimes I'll be out and about, and somebody from Sagebrush will stop me, and they say, oh, I mean, I, I, let me tell you about something that the church needs to do. I always love that. I'm like, oh, tell me more I should do for my job. Tell me more. I, I, like, I like it when somebody else gives me work. Yeah, tell me what you want. Yeah, go ahead. So oh, we need to do this, and we need to do that, and I, I think we should do this, and they're all wonderful ideas, and I think, I think that's wonderful. Why don't you do it? Well, I'm not saying I'm the guy to do it. I'm just saying somebody needs to do something about that. And so you think it's me. But I think it's you. 
Because God's given you that divine burden. God's put that burr in your saddle. Bob Pierce couldn't shake the image of that kid dying right in front of his eyes. And he said, from that point forward, I knew what my divine calling was. It was to get food on those tables. He flew back to the United States. He met with a bunch of business people, got a whole bunch of money together and brought the money back and food, 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 food was coming in. And kids' lives are being changed. Kids' lives are being saved. They're sharing the message of Jesus Christ. Kids are giving their lives over to Jesus Christ. It's an amazing ministry. And he meets a girl one day, right before he's getting ready to head back to the States to try to raise more money for this cause. He meets a girl by the name of White Jade. White Jade was poor. She was a street child. She'd recently become a Christian, and now she was being persecuted for it. She was being beat up for it. And she was starving. And they were still running out of food. So he gets ready to get on this plane and he looks at this little girl. He doesn't have anything to give her. And he reaches into his pocket and pulls out a $5 bill and hands it to her and says, I make a promise to you right now that I'll send more money to you this month. Use this money to get yourself some food. And that started the child sponsorship program that now feeds and houses and helps millions and millions of children every single day. And it all started because of a divine calling. So here's my question I have for you. What will kill you if you don't do it? Do you have anything like that in your life? This divine calling, this restlessness inside you that says, I've got to do something about this. It's no longer what someone else needs to do, but here I am, Lord, use me. I mean, what gets you fired up? What gets you excited? What makes you sad? You look at this and you say, oh, this is sad. This is awful. Someone needs to do something. What about you? What gets you mad? And you clench your fist and you hit the table and you say, my goodness, this is ridiculous. Could it be that joy and that sadness and that anger is how God is molding you and shaping you to use you in a way to meet a need that you never even thought that you could meet? Man, for Bob Pierce, it was about getting food on a table. For me, it was about starting this church. I grew up in a lousy church. It was so boring. Oh, I hated it. I hated every aspect. It was just a Christian country club. That's all it was. They got together. They had their worship services, and sometimes they'd have a potluck. That was a good time. Potlucks were a good time. They didn't start churches. They didn't start campuses. There there was a four-year period. They didn't baptize a single person for four years. You ever seen a baptism with dust? I have. That church was dead and lifeless. And the reason for that was they didn't care one thing about people outside the doors. They, they didn't care one thing about the spiritual needs that were all around them. And, and so I, I grow up in these churches that are just doing nothing. And I, and I read the book of Acts and I read about the beauty of the, of the first church. And I think if we could just somehow recapture that. And so that's how this church was birthed, a divine calling. I wanted a church where where people felt loved and people felt accepted, a a place where people could come and understand the message of Jesus Christ and walk out and go, that made sense, that was helpful to me. I wanted a church that was relevant. I wanted a church that cared. I I wanted a church that wanted to start other churches. I I wanted a group of people that wanted to be the hands and feet of Jesus. See, I believe that the church is the hope of the world. 
Because we've been given the message of salvation, that God is for us and not against us, that he loved us so much that he sent his son to die for us, but did not stay dead, but rose again from the dead. And when the church, oh my goodness, when the church is working right, there's nothing more beautiful, is there? Marriages are restored. Lost souls come home. Addictions are broken. Churches are started. Campuses begin. When the church is working right, the whole community begins to change because of the light of Jesus and the love of Christ. And that's the kind of church that Jesus came to create. So what is it in your life, friends, that you would say, I, I, I would die to do this. It would kill me if I don't get to be a part of this. Do you have anything like that in your life? That could be why you're feeling complacent. That could be why you're so bored. That could be why you have this angst inside of you for something more, but you just don't have the courage to go for it. Esther gets a message from Mordecai. He says, listen, maybe he puts you, God puts you in this royal position for such a time as this. And now she has a decision to make. Will she risk it all? Or will she go back into her bubble? And what does she decide to do? We'll find out next week. <laughs> I guess the bigger question is, what are you going to do? Do you see the needs? Do you see the hurt? Do you see the spiritual darkness? Do you see the emptiness? Will you be the light of the world? Will you be the salt of the earth? So here's your homework assignment if you choose to accept it. You ready? Don't think big. Think small. You would leave this place and go, oh, it's Bob Pierce, man, I start this thing. Oh, it's Todd. Oh, yeah, no, 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 no. He who's faithful in the small things, God will give even greater things. So here, here's your homework assignment if you choose to accept it. See a need, meet a need. What needs can you meet in your own family? What needs can you meet with your friends? What conversations do you need to have with your coworkers? How can you be the light of the world and the salt of the earth? Are you going to stay in your Christian bubble? Or will you get on the street and be what Jesus has called you to be? Comfort? Or impact. And it starts small. And my hope is when we gather together next week and we look at what Esther decided to do, that we'll all have stories to tell of impact, of meeting one need after another need after another need. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, maybe you've called us together for such a time as this, to be your hands and to be your feet. God, I'm so... I'm so frustrated sometimes with what should be and what needs to be. What could we accomplish? What could we do in our sphere of influence every single day? How can we leverage our lives to meeting the needs of other people? Get us out of our royal bubbles. Use us in ways we never thought we could ever be used. Please, God. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.